Amen. Would you open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the first chapter. Flip over from where Mickey read earlier. I invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On that day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of my sermon is, When God Reverses Pride. If you had just read what Mickey read for us, this song of Hannah in chapter 2, and you were to think to yourself, where, where am I going to go and look for whatever brought about that song? This theological reflection on a mighty work of God. This is a cataclysmic work of God. Where am I going to go to find whatever God just did to bring about that song? You might not go to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Elkanah, to Hannah's situation. But we should. Because when God does a mighty work, He's real particular about making sure everybody who sees it and hears about it knows that He did it. 
I'd love to be preaching in this, this text, in this context, where I know that among you, service is a treasure and not a burden. I see a lot of people here, even those that I don't know, that I saw all week helping out at the workshop, that you love to be asked for help. I'm amazed at the work of God in bringing together such a body that serves so well and is not only ambitious to grow their gifts and find their gifts, but use them for each other and strengthen one another with them. This text reminds us that the central truth of our lives, even as Christians, is one of dependence. We are those who need God to give what we did not have and to do for us what we could not do in Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. A truth we must never forget even as we grow to grow our gifts and serve one another. So some of you in this room that I know love to be asked for help, you might also get a feeling in the pit of your stomach when you find yourself asking for help. You realize, I cannot do this by myself. I'm going to need to ask for help. And to be sure, it is a good thing to be a helpful person, to grow one's gift, to be an asset to one another. But it is also very good to know just how dependent we are as God's people and that our dependence is an asset in a world that doesn't have a clue what to do with weakness and values pride as an ultimate good, confidence as an ultimate good not needing others as the ultimate good of life. So speaks the word of the Lord into a situation like that. You also might be sitting in here as I once did, hearing the people around you sing words like, if I had not loved you first, if you had not loved me first, excuse me, I would refuse you still. When you hear, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still, you might think, there's no way I'm that bad off. There's no way my situation is so helpless before God that I can't find Him on my own path. Well, you're wrong, and the Bible says so. This story was put to paper a few generations after these events in the days of Israel's divided kingdom. And their succession of kings didn't quite bring the prosperous unity that they thought it would. It brought them a civil war eventually. And the people needed to be led back to faithfulness. They needed a reversal of that situation. And in the time of the judges, immediately preceding these events, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord one time after another. Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord oppressed them with their enemies. And then the Lord would hear their cries for deliverance and raise up a judge to deliver them. And they would enjoy peace until they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so now we need a reversal of that situation. And so what does God do? What does the Lord of hosts ride into battle with to reverse the sin and affliction of his people? There's a certain man in Rama whose wife had no children. It should not be too much of a surprise to us because What makes us feel more powerless than having children? Remember, God loves to get the credit for what He does. What makes us feel more powerless than childbearing? 
with all our medical interventions and all the wonderful things that we have to care for children, even in the womb, we know at the end of the day it is the Lord who opens and closes the womb. And God used that to teach His people when He made a promise to Abraham generations earlier that He was going to bless the whole world through Abraham's line. Every one of the patriarch's wives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives were barren until the Lord opened their womb. God gets the credit when He does a mighty act. None of them were going to have a child until God sent it. There is no son like the promised son, like the asked for son, there's no king in Israel quite like the Lord of hosts who gives the asked for son. So we know what to look for when we hear there was a certain man whose wife had no children. God is about to do something amazing. In this story, we have a provocation that leads to a question. We have this year-by-year cycle of worshiping, uh, worshiping at Shiloh and a husband leading his family up to worship at Shiloh. But this worship, year after year, is a cycle of oppression, of provocation, of irritation for the woman with no children. Year by year, they go up to worship. The priests are there. The temple is there. And by the time we, this story would have been read for the first time, names like Hophni and Phinehas would have been a byword. Their epithet through the book of 1 Samuel is the worthless men, the Eli's worthless sons. And later, the most reasonable explanation that Eli can come up with for a woman behaving this way in the temple is that she's probably intoxicated. So you might say that things were probably not going all that well in Shiloh at the worship of God. Nevertheless, Elkanah provides for his family's year-by-year sacrifice because he loves them. And Hannah much like Israel, is loved but afflicted, provoked, and irritated because she's the one in the story who has no children. The Lord has closed her womb. That phrase is repeated twice, the Lord closed her womb. Because again, make no mistake, nobody has children unless the Lord opens the womb. The Lord is very busy in this narrative. It's His house. It's His priests. The Lord of hosts is the object of their worship and He is the one who has closed Hannah's womb. And for the other woman, the worship of the Lord of hosts for her is only an occasion for boasting in what she already has, her children. Can you hear it? It's good to see you again, Hannah. I'm honestly a little surprised you came. After all, what have you got to be thankful for this year? Like I do. But when God reverses pride, the barren woman is better off than her rival. The barren is born seven, and the one who has children is forlorn, she prayed. How terrifying to treat the worship of God as an occasion for boasting. Thank you, God, that I am so great. You remember Jesus' observation of the man who said, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like him? Terrifying. Hannah might have been able to bear this burden of childlessness were it not for the year-by-year cycle of provocation. So the cycle comes to a screeching halt. The time stops this year by year, and we get a moment of dialogue. We get this moment a question. Why are you sad, Hannah? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now it would miss the intent of the Spirit of God in this text to dismiss that question as the typical male insensitivity. 
well, Elkanah, I haven't been married all that long, but you don't have to be married all that long to know that you don't always have to fix it. You don't always have to ride in with your perspective on the matter and try to make things better. But I want to challenge you to listen to that question. Think about it. All the things that were said from Rama to Shiloh and back at the feast every year, and we only hear one line from Elkanah, listen to this question. What could ever be more to Hannah than ten sons? Well, we're finna find out. This question invites us to ask the question. And in the next scene, we get a prayer that leads to an answer. Hannah rose. Time zooms, time stops. We zoom in on this one interaction with Hannah to listen to what goes on in the temple at this particular feast in Shiloh. Why does Hannah pray to the Lord of hosts? She vows a vow. She doesn't ask for a son primarily to satisfy her desire for motherhood or to carry on the family name. She wants an end to this bitter cycle of distress, the shame that she is pestered about of having no children. And so she asks the Lord to remember This remembering is a covenant-keeping word laden with meaning all through the Scripture. And Israel needed the same thing Hannah did in this moment. They needed the Lord of hosts to look on their affliction and remember and end the cycle of sin, oppression, remembering, and forgetting. And Eli does the opposite of what Hannah asked God to do. He looks on the humble estate of this distressed woman. He looks on the affliction of this servant of God and sees a worthless woman. The use of the word worthless is intentional. The priests, the, the priest Eli, who doesn't do anything about his worthless sons, says to the humble worshiper what he should have said to them. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Eli does not see clearly as God does. But Eli is still the priest. And he knows that God has seen what he did not when Hannah explains herself. She's not full of wine. She's been pouring herself out before the Lord. Now look at verse 17. Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah, why did you weep? Why did you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, in verse 17, based on verse 18, Hannah has found something in verse 17 that was far more to her than ten sons. She found the ear of the Lord and a heart for her that remembers. Remember that question. Let it haunt this whole story. What could possibly bring an end to the weeping, the sadness, and the fasting? But the ear of God and the sight of God looking on that affliction and caring about what he sees. Sending her right back to perhaps the very table she left in verse 9 to feast before the Lord at a table prepared for her in the presence of her enemy. She knows that when she hears the priest of God say, go in peace, 
Help will always be given at Shiloh to those who ask for it and get a promise from God. And in verse 19, the Lord sends the answer. Hannah rever- God reversed Hannah's sorrow with a promise, and in due time, she conceived. And his naming tells us the significance of his birth, that he was an answer to an asking. In chapter 2, we read that reflection on the significance of Samuel's birth. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no son like the asked-for son. And now we hear Hannah's mouth deride her enemies. Sorry, Penina. Won't be able to make it to the feast this year. I'll be at home weaning the child that I asked the Lord for that He gave. So, I won't be seeing you and your littles this year. Oh yes, the Lord of hosts has given me far too many blessings to leave home right now since He heard my prayer and opened my womb. God reverses pride. And any king in Israel would need to know, verse 9 of chapter 2, not by might shall a man prevail. The strength they need is the kind they depend upon God for. It's the feeble that bind on strength when God breaks the bows of the strong. How does the Lord of hosts ride into battle for His sinning and afflicted people? With a, with a woman and a little boy she asked for. To show to all that not by might will a man prevail, but a woman who depended upon the Lord for a son is a symbol, a parable, of the Lord's dealings with His people. Now this completely transforms how we regard dependence and weakness. God's primary concern in His dealings with us is not how much we can do, but in how obvious it becomes to all that He has done all. What could possibly put an end to the weeping of a sinful and afflicted people who are separated from God by sin? Every one of us separated from God by sin. The Lord says to you, Revelation 5, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, that root of David, has conquered. The good news for you today from the word of the Lord is that God keeps His promise to reverse pride. Those who think they have much now, who do not need the Lord, will be embarrassed, not just overcome, but embarrassed when those who depend upon the Lord, who come before Him with nothing in their hands, who have nothing in this life, that is valuable but the Lord. Their weeping is put to an end forever. They, no tear will leave your eye again when the Lord rides in in victory. When we say, when we hear those words, weep no more. Those who are empty now, those who are poured out before the Lord, will be so thoroughly filled like a cup cast into the ocean forever. And no tear will ever Leave their eye. For you children in the room, it's great to grow up and want to get. It's great to want to grow up and get big. You want to grow up because you can spend more time and effort uh, instead of entertaining yourself, serving others, and being productive, not just having fun all the time. But it's also okay to be small. And the word of the Lord for someone who is a small child, who is aware of all the things you can't do yet, 
is that it's okay to be small and dependent, according to the Lord. You might have noticed, in fact, that just like there's some things you can't do yet, just like you see big brother and big sister and mom and dad doing things and you hear, wait till you're older, there are some things that grandma and grandpa can't do anymore that they might have once done. And just like you need to ask mom and dad for help, sometimes they need to ask mom and dad for help. And sometimes even mom and dad need to ask their friends for help. Well, we all need to ask the Lord for help. So every time you need to ask mom and dad for help, every time mom and dad need to ask for help, you're getting a little lesson about how all of us relate to God. That it is an asset for us to have the Lord and be needy before Him. Because God loves to help just like mom and dad love to help. And one day, even when you get big and strong, and your mother asks you to reach the things on the top shelf, instead of you asking mom to reach the things on the top shelf, you're still going to find that, there are thi- that there's a great big thing that you need that you cannot get, as big and strong as you are. And in fact, the bigger and stronger you get, the less sensitive you might be to this need that you have. That you cannot save yourself from sin. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot turn away from disobedience and selfishness by yourself. You need help. You need Jesus Christ. Just like mommy and daddy, as you grow up, there will come a day when you need to ask for help. When you realize that you are powerless against sin, disobedience, selfishness, you realize you are separated from God, you must ask Jesus for help. And He loves to be asked for help. In fact, the fact that Jesus even came into the world, a child born to a virgin, means that the mighty of this world have been embarrassed and destroyed and the humble have been exalted and established. When God became a man, it wasn't a barren woman whose womb was opened. It was a virgin who had not even known her husband. So God, the God of reversal, gives a son to the whole world. He reverses the curse. In that we're empowered to obey and enjoy God like we weren't before under the curse. The son reverses Babel, how we're all separated by natural distinctions. He brings together a people from all nations. Every tribe, tongue on earth. Every age and stage comes before the Lord through Christ. And the Son reverses every one of us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So Christians' dependence is actually a central theme of our lives. You can look with me in Luke chapter 2. A similar song sung at the provision of a son. Verse 48, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Jesus Christ coming into the world is a great answer to what could be more than ten sons. How about one Son of God, the Eternal Son, the Word who was with God in the beginning, by whom all things were made, comes as an answer to the humble estate of His servants. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now tell me, is it better to be humble, weak, and utterly dependent upon God, or mighty and powerful? When we come to Christ for our immense need, we are met by the God who loves to help. And we join a family full of helpful people, rich with gifts that God gives. If we weren't supposed to be needy, we wouldn't get so much help from the Lord. We wouldn't be spoken of in this way. God does not shame us for being needy. He shames those who pretend to be rich without Him. Be warned, do not confuse an abundance of goods for the favor of God. If you're like Penina, and your thanksgiving is an occasion for boasting, all you have will be stripped away in a moment. If your thanksgiving is not directed to God, but is an occasion for celebrating your own strength. This text, either this this song of Mary in Luke chapter 1 about the coming of the Messiah, or the story of God's listening to Hannah, this is bad news if you despise the humble. How often in my heart have I said, Oh God, give me death, but do not give me an affliction. Do not make me need you. Do not put me on my knees where I will be totally exposed as unable to do anything for myself. Do not give me an affliction that would force me to depend on you. The surest way to never know God's blessing is to not think you need it. God will not answer prayers that go unprayed. And what keeps us from praying more than a sense of self-dependence? When God sees the humility of a servant, He sees the very desperation that Christ came to meet. The Christ who said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will not get that offer from anyone else in the world. What you will get from the world is actually, you conform to what we say is valuable, or you're going to have a bad time. We're going to hold out all these things in front of you that you're supposed to chase, and you're never going to get it, because as soon as you get that, we'll invent something else that you need. That's the offer you get from the here and now. That's the offer you get from worldly goods. What you get from God is His ear, His listening, His covenantal remembering of His promises to the world. For many of you, at least for someone you know, if not you yourself, coming to Christ might seem like a very costly thing that is totally impossible. And if you, if you look at coming to Christ and, putting my, and, and accepting the fact that I need God to make me right with God, I need God to do everything for me, if that seems totally impossible and frightening, it's because you're beginning to understand the Gospel. You're beginning to understand that God will not share His glory with another. And He has provided for you all that you need for life and for godliness. It may seem like such a distance between where you are and where God is, and it is, but God has bridged that in Christ. Christ has come to us. If you are weak, if you think this is too much for you to do, I could never become a Christian. I could never do what they do. I could never be like Christ was. You are precisely the kind of person that Jesus came to save. When Christ sees a humble servant, 
before him, totally dependent and empty, he sees a vessel to pour mercy into. That's what he sees when he sees you. God never shames us for needing him. We would also miss this text if we think that Hannah's prayer is a formula for getting from the Lord what we want. And I'll dismiss that with one word from the Gospel. What did obedience get Jesus? Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. But why did He go to the cross? What kept Him going to the cross? It was the joy set before Him. Jesus, the God-man, depended upon God to do all things for Him. Praying before the Lord night and day. Fasting 40 days in the wilderness driven there by the Spirit of God. Demonstrated perfect humility for us. The one who one through whom all things were made, the one from whom we need everything, came as one who needed everything from God to demonstrate what Hannah teaches us. That the greatest possession we could ever have, that could be more to us than ten sons, that would end our weeping forever, is for God to show favor to us. So it does my heart good to be with you again this week. And to invite you to treasure your weakness. Treasure your dependence upon the Lord. To need Jesus. To need God to answer your situation with a son. To reverse what seems impossible for you to overcome. Not by infusing you with a sense of self-actualization. But with a son promised from before the foundation of the world. Reversing the curse. Reversing us from the kingdom of darkness into His kingdom. Weep no more. Christ has conquered. Let's pray. Father, would You write this on our hearts today? Teach us full obedience and holy reverence. You have brought down the mighty from their thrones. You have exalted those of humble estate. I pray that no one in this room would ever envy the proud, would never envy the great, that we would all with one voice seek to live together in such a way that we are seeing how low we can get under your heavy hand. Would you get us low under your hand? Humble us at any cost. Make us desperate for you. And for those in this room who are all too aware of this desperation they have, whose who have been given the great gift today of seeing like you see that they are desperate before you, would you meet them with unmitigated grace and kindness and mercy in Jesus? Would you teach them to see more than their desperation, but to see an opportunity for grace to fill them like a cup cast into the sea at the sight of glory? Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.